study on the Beatitudes with the setting of the Sermon on the Mount. Where did it take place? This was a region that was set away, set apart from the rest of the crowd. Jesus had left the crowd to go off by himself. And what we find in the Gospels is very often this is what Jesus would do. We understand why he needs that time to get away. Remember, Jesus took on full humanity, so he would get fatigued. He would need that break from the hustle and the bustle of all of the people, all of the crowds crowding in on him. He needed that seclusion. But even in seclusion, Jesus ministers to other people, and that's what we find in this text. Now, Paula and I, when we went to India, I got the impression of what Jesus must have experienced as crowds were around him. Look at the first verse of this fifth chapter, and it says this, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Now, this would have been in the region of Galilee. It's probably not a true mountain. It's a hill, but Jesus sat apart from them. He, he pulled himself away from them for the purpose of rest, but also for the purpose of teaching his disciples. And as I said, Paula and I experienced what it was to have crowds pressing in on us when we went to India. In one particular meeting we were in, we were speaking to a large group in the thousands of people. And we had to leave the platform and go to our rides, and in order to get there, we had to walk through the crowd. Something that the crowd did that we really didn't expect was they pressed in on us, and they were all wanting to touch us because, in their thinking, we were holy people, and they wanted some of that holiness to rub off, I guess. And so we're going through the crowd. Now, I didn't have too much of a problem. Paul and I got separated, but... They're kind of little and skinny, so I just, you know, did the old rugby move and went right through. But I'm turning back, and I'm looking, and there's Paula. And all of them, there weren't too many blonde-headed women in India, so all of them wanted to touch her hair, and they wanted to touch her, and I said, uh-oh. So I did the rugby move back to her. And then brought her out with me. But that pressing in, as I was doing that and as we were coming out, I was thinking, wow, you know, that's probably what Jesus experienced as he was in the midst of the crowds. People just wanting contact with him, wanting to touch him. That would always be there as he's with the crowd. And so he secluded himself. He got away from those crowds. And the purpose of it was to spend time with his disciples. But then we go on in the text. And as that first verse goes on, it says this, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, what we find in the rest of the first verse and the second verse as well is Jesus spoke to his disciples. Now, disciples here would have been those followers, those ones that he called, the ones that are mentioned toward the end of that fourth chapter. But it would also perhaps include a small circle outside of them. And Jesus' purpose was to impress upon them the values of the kingdom. You know, when you start a venture and you're looking for leaders to assist you in bringing that venture to fruition, it's vital that they understand the values and the purpose of what you're doing, that they get the big idea. 
And so that's what Jesus is doing with those disciples that he called, mentioned, toward the end of that fourth chapter, but also with other disciples. And what's intriguing in this text is the way that he teaches them. Now, to us, when it says Jesus sat down, we would be thinking in terms of, oh, Jesus needed a rest, so he decided to sit down. But that's not what's going on. You see, in the first century, the posture of a rabbi as he's teaching is to sit down. It was a position of authority. And so as Jesus is teaching his disciples and he sits down to teach them, that's their cue. Teaching time is about to begin. So gather around, listen up, because I have something important to say. It was so important for these disciples to sit at the feet of Jesus. And you know, just as it's important for these disciples to pull themselves away from the clutter and the noise and everything that's going on around them to sit at the feet of Jesus, it's vital for us to do that today as well. Isn't it easy to get lost in the busyness that is a part of everyday life, in the busyness of our culture and our world? We can get so caught up in that that we don't take time to sit at the feet of Jesus through a personal devotion, through a prayer time, through looking into God's Word. The noise is always there overrunning and overshadowing everything that goes on, and we need to pull ourselves away and sit at the feet of Jesus. So that's what these disciples are doing, pulling themselves away, sitting at the feet of Jesus, ready to hear what their Lord has to say. One other consideration about this setting, and that is the structure of the Beatitudes. Now, as we go through the Beatitudes, we're going to see a word repeated again and again and again, and that word is blessed or blessed, depending on how you pronounce it. And the word itself, Beatitude, is from a Latin word that actually means to be blessed, Beatus. We turned it into our anglicized beatitudes, but that's what it means to be blessed. Now, we see this word blessed translated different ways in different translations. For instance, the Bible in basic English says, happy are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Happy are those who are sad, for they will be comforted. Happy are the gentle, for the earth will be their heritage. That's one way that it's often rendered. But then we also find the Living Bible, and it says, humble men are very fortunate, he told them, for the kingdom of heaven is given to them. Those who mourn are fortunate, for they shall be comforted. The meek and the lowly are fortunate, for the whole wide world belongs to them. So differing approaches to this word that is translated in our English Bibles, blessed. Really, when you boil it down, It's hard to take this word and find an English counterpart. Happy moves toward that, but it doesn't quite communicate what the people in the first century would have thought. You see, when we think of happiness, we often think of how it affects us emotionally. It is an emotional response to things going our way, basically, right? I'm happy when things work out. And the definition of things working out is when they go the way I want them to. That's certainly not the idea of what Jesus is communicating in this text. I like what Warren Wiersbe had to say. He's home with the Lord now, but his writings, if you get a chance to read Warren Wiersbe, he puts things so well. 
And this is what he says concerning this. This was a powerful word to those who heard Jesus on that day. To them it meant divine joy and perfect happiness. The word was not used for humans. It described the land of joy experienced only by the gods or the dead. Blessed implies an inner satisfaction and sufficiency that not, did not depend on outward circumstances for happiness. This is what the Lord offers those who trust in Him. So it's that idea of satisfaction, happiness that goes beyond the moment, way beyond the emotion. It is the sense of fulfillment and rejoicing in the fulfillment that we experience. And it's really about God and not about us. And that's what we want to see as we go through these Beatitudes. Now, let's move into the Beatitudes themselves. Jesus begins to share with us in verse 3 the substance of kingdom living. And what he begins with is very important. You cannot experience kingdom living if life is all about me. Self has to be diminished. Look at what he says in the third verse, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, what is he talking about when he speaks of being poor in spirit? Really, this has to do with humility. In other words, not an overestimation of myself. In Jesus' day, many of those who opposed the teaching of Jesus opposed it because it took personal performance out of the picture. It was a dependence on God and not on me. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples is this. We need to focus on God rather than man. Think about this. Humility is only the, the only way to attain grace. You see, the moment that I believe that I have participation in the grace that God gives, His unmerited, unearned favor, I have discounted the idea of grace. Grace requires me coming to God and saying, I bring nothing to the table. I am helpless. I am hopeless. I need what you provide. If we come in with an overestimation and we say, God has to give me this because I did this, we've missed the point of the poor, poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are the humble, the ones who come and bring themselves before God to receive His mercy and His grace and all that He provides. Pride pushes God away and says, I've got this, rather than a dependence on God. Peter brings this out clearly when he writes this, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Now, look at the next statement. It's profound. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The only way you receive grace is through humility, receiving what God freely gives. But then the sixth verse goes on to say, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. 
That's kingdom thinking. When I come to God poor in spirit, then I am ready to receive the things of the kingdom. If I come in with a list of the things that I do, not poor in spirit, but proud, I will never be ready to receive what God freely gives. The prophet Micah records in the sixth chapter ways that man might approach God. He talks about 10,000 rams. He talks about rivers of oil. All of these offerings that could be given, even the firstborn child, And this is God's response to those who would come and say, these are the things that I need to do to win God's favor. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness? And look at this last one. And to walk humbly with your God. This is how God wants us to approach Him. Not saying, look at all that I've done but coming to Him poor in spirit, recognizing we are helpless, hopeless sinners in need of His forgiveness, and that is the entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Something else we find in this text as we go on to verses 4 through 6 is this. Being poor in spirit spirit means that sin is seen for what it is. Look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, many of you know what it is to mourn because of the loss of a loved one or the loss of a precious thing, and you experience that mourning. But I believe that Jesus is talking about a more specific kind of mourning from the context of this passage. The mourning that he speaks of here is a mourning associated with sorrow for sin. When I am poor in spirit and I recognize my own wretchedness, mourning is the response that I have as I look at my sin. It's talking about a great sorrow for sin. And you know, as I think about this passage of Scripture, I had to ask myself, when is the last time I wept over my own sin? I'm great at justifying my sin and saying, oh, here's the reason I did this. I love to redefine sin and call it something else, hoping that by redefining it, it won't be as sinful. But what the Word of God is teaching us in this passage is there needs to be a genuine sorrow for sin. Not that that in some way earns God's favor, but it's more a response to recognizing with humility who I am and how I've failed and how I've sinned. And it is feeling a genuine sorrow for that sin. God wants us to approach sin in that way. You know what I do? I do the comparison game. Yeah, I did this, but at least I didn't fill in the blank, right? I diminish my sin. I don't feel sorry for it because at least I'm not a plug-in-your-favorite-value. God wants us to come face-to-face with our sin, recognize that we are sinners, and in so doing, we will find comfort. Listen, as long as I hold on to my sin, as long as I 
justify my sin rather than seeking the justification that God provides by humbling myself before Him and the gospel, I will never be comforted when it comes to my sin. I might become numb to it, but I'm not comforted. God wants us to experience that. Look at what else the Scripture says, blessed are the meek. Now, when we look at sin, meekness describes to us one that doesn't hold on to their sin in rebellion and defends ourselves further as to why we keep doing this. The meek person is the one who looks at their sin and recognizes their need of God, but then they also look on the sin of others. And rather than coming down hard on those around them, they show gentleness and kindness to others. That's the idea of meekness. Now, when our culture looks at meekness and when the first century looked at meekness, it wasn't a positive attribute. It was an attribute that many looked upon as a sign of weakness, the attitude of a slave, certainly not something worthy of a religious leader or a real man or any of the things that they would associate with being bold and strong and moving in the face of opposition. When Jesus talks about meekness, He is telling us something that would have been counterintuitive to them, but also counterintuitive to us. Meek are those who have their power under control, that's the meaning of this word meekness, and they choose to not come down on others, they choose to look at their own sin rather than constantly searching the horizon for the person that's more sinful for th than them so that they can come down on them. God wants us to live with this kind of meekness. Often, we get things backwards. We're very understanding when it comes to our own sin, right? I had a reason. I did this because, but we're very judgmental when it comes to the sin of others. Kingdom living is the opposite. Kingdom living teaches me to be loving and gentle and kind to sinners and to confess and forsake my own sin. And what happens? The meek will inherit the earth. What this is sharing with us is this. We think that power and force will lead us to more acquisitions, right? We'll get more stuff if I press and I push and I overrun people to get there. But what the Word of God reminds us of is this. Again, this is about God, not about us. We show meekness, kindness, compassion to other people. And that's the way we see the beautiful things of the kingdom of God. We are going to inherit the earth. And something else that we're finding as we look through these Beatitudes is this, it's long-term thinking. Often what we look at is, if I do this, I get this now or in the short future, right? What kingdom living asks us to do is to take the long view. You see, Jesus Christ is going to establish His kingdom on earth, and that's what we live for. I don't live for the immediate. I'm to live for the kingdom. 
that Jesus Christ is going to establish on earth, that he is going to come again, establish that kingdom on earth, and I will be a part of it. This is how God wants us to live. Look at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, these are the people that find their satisfaction in doing what is right. You know, as I look at this passage of Scripture again, I'm convicted. Do I really hunger and thirst for righteousness? Is it a passion to live for God and to do the things that God would have me do? Or again, is it all about me? What I can get immediately, right here, right now. God wants us to deeply desire to live for Him, to live righteously. Again, this idea of righteousness, something that we saw earlier in the book of Matthew, isn't so much talking about the kind of righteousness we receive at salvation, but it's talking about the kind of righteousness that lives out, does the right thing, follows what God commands us to do. God wants us to have a passion for that, a hunger and a thirst for that. And what He's telling us is this, obedience to God is the real path to satisfaction. Isn't sin great at lying to us? Do this and you'll experience such happiness. So many good things if you just cut the corner, if you just cheat a little bit. There's a world of opportunity for you. Sin never shows us the consequences. The lack of satisfaction that it brings into our life. That moment of satisfaction that we might think that we have is more than offset by the consequences of that sin. God wants us to live in a way that looks for the long-term satisfaction of knowing that we have pleased God and that we have lived according to His kingdom. This is the way God wants us to live. We find something else. As we go on to the next part of this passage, verses 7 through 9, we see the value of imitating God. When we come to that seventh verse, it says this, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It's so important that we seek to be an imitator of God. God's attributes of mercy and purity and peace should be lived out in in our lives in this world looking to the kingdom of God. And so what the Word of God is calling us to is, first of all, mercy. Now, what is mercy? Mercy is showing compassion for those who are entrapped by their sin. As those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, sometimes it's easy for us to forget that we need to show mercy to those who are entrapped by their sin. We get into the culture wars, and we find that we not only reject the sin, but we transfer that to the sinner, and as a result, there is a deep hatred that can develop, not in keeping with the heart of God. The heart of God is merciful, and we should be merciful too. Many of you know the story of Amber Geiger who went into an apartment in Dallas, Texas, an off-duty police officer with her weapon at her side, and she shot 
a young man who was in that apartment, and her trial was broadcast because of the nature of what took place. But the brother of the man who was shot, Brant Jean, on the witness stand showed mercy in the way that he responded to this woman who took the life of his brother. I just want to show you a brief clip of that testimony. I don't want to say twice or for the hundredth time what you've or how much you've taken from us. I think you know that. But I just, I hope you go to God with all what, all the guilt, all the thing, the bad things you may have done in the past. Each and every one of us may have done something that we're not supposed to do. If you truly are sorry, I know. I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. And. I know if you go to God and ask Him, He will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not gonna say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't gonna ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not gonna say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. Mercy. That's the idea of mercy. 
That is how God wants us to treat one another. We're all sinners. We're not to divide into our camps and hate one another for the sin that we commit. We're to show mercy, just as this young man showed mercy to the woman who killed his brother, Botham. Something else we find in this text, as we move on in the Beatitudes, in verse 8 it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart means unmixed. See, those who aren't thinking in terms of the kingdom try to live a duplicitous life. I can live the way I want to some of the time, and the way God would have me live some of the time, and I don't have a pure heart directed toward the things of God. It's in many directions. God wants us to have a heart fully devoted and directed toward Him, and when that happens, we have that deep fellowship with God. We will see God in the kingdom but we will experience that closeness of fellowship with God now. In our culture, more and more we find believers who struggle with duplicity. All of us, in one degree or another, but what God wants us to do is live focused. Focused on the things of God. Then look at the next attribute, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now, peacemaker, what it means is this. I will seek to sow peace, peace with God as I share the gospel, but also to move toward peace in my interaction with other people, and particularly fellow journeyers on our way to the kingdom. God wants us to be a peacemaker. In other words, when there's a conflict, rather than running to the conflict and saying, let me jump in, (laughs) but looking and saying, when there's a conflict, let's do that which makes for peace. God wants us to live that way for the kingdom, and when we do that, we demonstrate that we are the children of God, that we have that closeness of relationship with Him to where we are imitators of God. James put it this way, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to full reason. Do you catch the parallels between this and what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? Pure, peaceable, gentle. That parallels meekness, purity, those who make peace. And then it goes on to say, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is something that God highly values. And as those seeking to live for the kingdom, we should value it too. So what happens when we live in the way described in verses 1 through 9? The world is going to love us, right? 
They look at that kind of character and they say, wow, that is admirable. I respect the people who seek to live in that way. And if your answer is yes to that, you haven't read on. Because immediately on the heels of calling us to be people who are merciful and pure and kind and righteous and all of the attributes that have been shared in the Beatitudes, when we live for the kingdom, we're sure to face persecution. And we need to understand that. Look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As you seek to live a righteous life, you will be persecuted. This is the Word of God, the words of our Lord. Jesus lived a righteous life, and they crucified Him and attempted to murder Him multiple times before the crucifixion. He was hated and rejected because He sought to live for God. Listen, as believers, I believe that we're maybe an election away or a couple of appointed judges away from seeing a radical transformation of the freedoms that we have and the way that we worship God. And I'm not saying that to be political. I'm just saying this is fragile. The opportunity that we have is limited. We are told in Scripture that persecution will increase. And so we need to have a perspective before the changes come because it's awfully hard to get that perspective once they do. The perspective that God wants us to have is blessed are the people who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Are you prepared? Or persecution? Do you have your mind dialed in to the things of God so that when persecuted by your family or the workplace or a neighbor, you're prepared? Should things change in our nation and it becomes more difficult to be a follower of Jesus Christ, are you prepared? God wants us to recognize that this is something that is very real and there will be real-world experiences of persecution. But, look at the last part, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. At the end of it all, there's a reward that awaits us. Paul said this, For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That is our perspective on persecution. Look at what our Lord goes on to say. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad. For great is your reward in heaven. And in verse 11, look, look at the way that this amplifies. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Those are real life experiences. And listen, what Jesus is saying is this. You won't particularly enjoy the experience of this, 
But when you look to the eternal things, the reward that you have to look forward to, that my reward waits for me in heaven, then I can endure it and totally rejoice in what God provides when I'm delivered from this life into His kingdom. That's our hope. That's what we long for. We're reminded that we have to have that long-term thinking. Look at the closing comment of verse 12, and with this we'll close our time in this passage. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The first century wasn't the only culture that experienced persecution. When Jesus says in the 11th verse that people will say all manner of evil things against you, the early church, when you read some of the Roman documents that accused them of being cannibals because they shared in the Lord's table, that will do in just moments, they accused them of being incestuous because they referred to one another as brother or sister in Christ. They accused them of kidnapping because they rescued babies who were left to the elements to die and took them into the church. All of those accusations were leveled against the church who were living for the kingdom. When we look in the Old Testament, the prophets experienced the same treatment. I encourage you later, go home and read Hebrews chapter 11. See what many of them experienced as they were living for God and ultimately for the kingdom. But here's the thing. In all of this, it's eternity that counts. It's the long view that needs to be taken. Don't get bogged down in the moment, but focus on pleasing one who is eternal, God, and living for His kingdom, which is surely coming and which you will be a part of 